This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is American Breakdown, The Trump Years and How They Befell Us by David Bromwich. Donald Trump's residency in the White House is not an accident of American history, and it can't be blamed on a single cause. In American Breakdown, David Bromwich provides an essential analysis of the forces in play beneath the surface of our political system. His portraits of political leaders and overarching narrative bring to life the events and machinations that have led America to a collective breakdown. The political conditions of the present crisis were put in place over 50 years ago, with the expansion of the Vietnam War and the lies and cover-ups that brought down Nixon. Since then, every presidency has further centralized and strengthened executive power. The truly catastrophic event was the invention by George W. Bush and Dick Cheney of the War on Terror, designed to last for generations. Barack Obama's practice of reconciliation without truth, sparing CIA torturers and Wall Street bankers, deepened the distrust and anger of voters who rallied around Trump. An unsparing account of the degradation of U.S. democracy, American breakdown is essential to our evaluation of its prospects. Arguing that Trump's re-election seems just as likely as impeachment, Bromwich turns his attention to the new struggles within the Democratic Party on immigration, foreign policy, and the Green New Deal. American breakdown will be a crucial reference point in the political debate around the upcoming presidential election, a contest in which the forces that created Donald Trump show little sign of letting up. American Breakdown The Trump Years and How They Befell Us, by David Bromwich, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. High-tech companies have long presented their work as the sort of wizardry in service of the consuming public, but it's beyond clear that Amazon's greatest innovation is not one-click shopping, and that the secret of Uber's success is not that your phone can make a de facto taxi appear at whim. What both companies excel at is driving wages down and pushing workers to the edge of human possibility while holding them at arm's length. Just as Apple's sleek design and user-friendly interface are built by the labor of a massive army of Chinese workers at Foxconn, the U.S. service economy is powered by millions subjected to crappy pay in the arbitrary power of bosses and scheduling algorithms. This is what I'm discussing today with Emily Gundelsberger, the author of On the Clock, What Low-Wage Work Did to Me and How It Drives America Insane. It's harrowing, funny, and sort of like Barbara Ehrenreich's Nickel and Dimed, updated for an era of newly intensified labor exploitation that's somehow profoundly worse than 20 years ago when Ehrenreich wrote her book, and things were pretty bad then. Before we get this thing started, I must pause to earnestly, sincerely, directly to you, my listener, whose ear I'm speaking into at present, request your support at 
com slash the dig. Many podcasts to fund themselves paywall half their shows and no shade at all on them, but we have a different model at the dig. We paywall none of our episodes because for us, ensuring that the maximum number of people possible listen to each and every episode and hear the critical analysis offered by my guests is really important. It's the political purpose of the show. And so we depend on those of you who can afford kicking in as little as 3 to $5 a month to do that so we can provide the show for free to everyone, regardless of their ability to pay. I talked to someone at Patreon the other day, and they were like, damn, this is a very unusual fundraising model for a podcast. And that's really cool. And you make that possible. So thank you. Plus, we have book giveaways for listeners who contribute at least $10 a month, including Capital City, Gentrification in the Real Estate State by Sam Stein, Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism, Feminism for the 99% by Nancy Fraser, Cynthia Arutza, and Tithi Bhattacharya, and Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump by Assad Hader. So, if you're listening now and you have not done so already, please hit pause, take a few minutes, and make a donation at patreon.com slash the dig. $5 a month is great. More than that, even better. If you're driving now, or at the gym, or your hands are soapy because you're washing dishes, make a mental note to do so when you're done. I'm talking to you, you know who you are, listening right now in traffic, who keeps meaning to donate but always forgets. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Also, Emily wants you to know about two upcoming readings, and you should attend them and meet Emily, because Emily is great, which I know because I know her well. One reading is in L.A. at The Last Bookstore, Wednesday, August 21st, and in New York, August 13th at Powerhouse Arena, in conversation with Jessica Bruder. She's also going other places, I'm sure, but if you are in New York or L.A., please check those two readings out. I'll put information in the show notes. Thanks, and here's Emily Gundelsberger, a journalist who's worked at pretty much every newspaper in Philly, the greatest city in the world, before writing a book about why work has somehow gotten even worse, entitled On the Clock, What Low-Wage Work Did to Me and How It Drives America Insane. Most importantly, she used to work with me when we were both staff writers at Philadelphia City Paper, RIP. Emily Gundelsberger, welcome to The Dig. Hey, Dan. You know me well because we've been good friends since we worked together at the now-deceased Philadelphia City Paper. R.I.P. And you pledged to make fun of me if I used my so-called radio voice. So to start things off, <laughs> explain my radio voice <laughs> and how it differs from the ordinary voice that you're accustomed to. So you're using your normal voice now, I think. 
uh, I would say that your that the radio voice differs in that it's like it's just kind of like turned down a little bit. Like there's less uh, sort of like up and down tones, I suppose. It's very It's calming. more measured. Yes, it's more measured and it's very precise and I'm more of a mess in real life. What? Yeah, yeah, just like you're more of a normal <laughs> human. Um the original title for your book was In the Weeds, which played off of a difference in how people who do different sorts of work use the term. White collar professionals tend to use it to mean going deep, maybe way too deep into the details of something, Mm -hmm. whereas service workers use it to convey that they are so busy that they can't stop to think. So I think this this distinction is a good jumping off point to discuss the big picture story your book tells. What does it feel like to be in the weeds and why are service workers deeper in the weeds than ever? So like the waitress definition, which is sort of the one that I grew up with in the weeds is like, yeah, you're just either because of understaffing or a rush or or something like that. You just have way too much work to do. It's like you're frantically sort of like paddling to try and keep your head above water, but it's still not working. And you know that it's going to go on for hours. Uh, That is what my initial definition of in the weeds was. And then sort of when I went into journalism, I found that like it did not mean the same thing and it would confuse people when I used the waitress definition. And that is sort of what I find. Yeah, again, it's like sort of the central metaphor of the of the book in that words like job or like good job, good benefits, stress, all of these words mean completely different things to people depending on what their class is. And when you and I worked at Philly City Paper, which I would not say was the best paying job in the world. uh, I recall the salary sucking pretty hard. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But we did have a lot of freedom, right? Like you could, you know, we could go get coffee and we could, you know, walk around the block to clear your heads. And like, as long as you got your I mostly worked from home. (laughs) Yeah. And you yeah. And if you like worked all weekend, like on Pope weekend or, or like election weekend or something like that, you could take comp time, uh, to make up for the extra work you did. And, you know, they weren't, terribly, terribly bad about when you were late. (laughs) But uh, yeah, so the disconnect between that sort of understanding of work where you do have a certain amount of freedom and you do have a certain amount of autonomy, I suppose, there's almost no bridge between that and sort of what low-wage service work has sort of become. Uh, Because again, like we've gotten so good at technology that can like time and track and monitor everything that you do on the job. Like I compare it to like when we were at City Paper, for example, I kind of thought of that like uh, like being like horses running around like a very large pasture enclosure or something. Like you weren't completely free to do whatever you want, but you had a lot of freedom. And I remember when I was doing you know, when I was doing service jobs in, you know, my teens and 20s, it was not that big a pasture, but it was like, you know, a smaller one. But you did still have a little bit of autonomy, right? You still got told time to lean, time to clean, but but you could still get away with some leaning. Yeah, exactly. Like a manager had to notice that you were 
leaning to be called out for it. Uh, but these jobs are so tightly controlled and so monitored and timed that it's, to me, the comparable thing would be having a belt around your waist that's about like four holes too tight so that you can kind of barely breathe. Scheduling algorithms have been one key tool in making workers' jobs so much shittier, service worker jobs. How did these scheduling systems come about? Why are they so good at generating profits? And what does it feel like to be a worker who is subjected to one? These sorts of scheduling things came, they're in part based on like the just-in-time theory of, of work that sort of came out of the Toyota production system. The theory behind that is you only have what you need. You you try and eliminate waste at every single point in the like production cycle. So when that was eventually adopted by American companies, they started applying it to the workers, which the Japanese system really didn't do. The Japanese system was very, very tight on supplies and that sort of thing. But like the workers were generally treated like they had job security and it was much more of a like the company takes care of you sort of situation. It was about optimizing the supply chain so that you had just the quantity of whatever Yes, item yeah, exactly. you needed at just the right moment. Exactly, yeah. Um, and so that sort of, in in America, they started applying that not just to supply chain and to physical things, but to actual workers. And so instead of having, you know, what people would think of as a normal schedule if they had worked fast food or retail maybe in the, like, 70s or 80s or whatever, uh, they probably had a relatively predictable schedule. They probably... And they almost certainly were not in situations where they were either on call, which is where like they're expected to, which today is pretty common, where you're expected to keep your schedule clear in case you're needed, but you're not actually scheduled for a shift and you have no guarantee of actually making any money. And sort of the other side of that coin is- It's like being a doctor, uh, except paid way less without all of the comp time. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, and, but the other side of that coin is that like, uh, is cutting people, which even if you are scheduled, you're not particularly guaranteed to actually get those hours if things get slow before, if things were slow, that's where like time to lean, time to clean came in. Like if it's slow, you ideally in the company's mind should not be leaning or resting, but they weren't actually going to send you home when the if, if if things got slow some when i was on radio times the other week this uh former manager at mcdonald's called in he was talking about like how even i think it was like 10 or 15 years ago they had a central sort of uh, algorithm that analyzed the sales that they were making at uh per hour at mcdonald's and if they were not if the sales were not enough to make up for the hourly labor cost, it would sort of signal you to cut somebody and, and, and send them home, regardless of whether the manager thought that was a good idea or not. And this lack of control over scheduling, this total casualization of scheduling and putting it entirely within the power of, of management's arbitrary techno back decision-making, this is also used to discipline and retaliate against workers. You you had your hours cut at a San Francisco McDonald's because you called in sick. 
I don't know. I don't I honestly do not know why. Like I was not able to like verify that or anything. It correlated for sure. It wouldn't and be it smart also, retaliation if you knew for sure. <laughs> that's yeah, exactly. Uh, because that's de- like especially in San Francisco, that is extremely not allowed. Um, but that was the thing. Like I, I took I took a couple days off because I had the flu, but I also took one day off. I had already requested one day off, like sort of during my flu time <laughs> to go. Um, because like there was like a the second big Milo rally was happening at Berkeley. And I thought it might be – and I was, like, you know, staying in Oakland. I was, like, within walking distance. And I was like, maybe that would be interesting to go to. I'm scheduled to – like, like, I wasn't I even scheduled, but I feel like punching Nazis. <laughs> yeah. No, I just wanted to see whether – what it was. Whether – I always – I don't know. With those things, I always – like, there really are never actually as many people – there as they as people seem to think they are when they see it like covered by the media and yeah it was like a pretty small group honestly and milo as ever looked like i don't know he was wearing a ridiculous outfit and like looked like a domestic violence victim or something and like i don't know it was so minor compared to what i was expecting that i didn't even use it in the book it was just stupid but yeah i it was strange i don't know why i got my hours cut but i did but the it was definitely weird. Like, it, it definitely seemed regarded as weird that I would request off. Because, like, I had a no no lying at all policy about this whole project. So when I needed to ask for time off, I put, like, protest as reason for it. And that seemed to, like, kind of baffle people, I guess. <laughs> Which does make sense. It would be, it was really far from a thing that was important enough to actually take time off for, for I think anybody that actually works these jobs, like you, you don't take time off to attend protests. Like that's a kind of ridiculous thing to do if you're paycheck to paycheck. One important aspect of this scheduling system is the way it extends the power of the boss over who already is the, the despot on the job by you know, virtue of capitalism over the entirety of a worker's life being subjected to these, these algorithmic scheduling system. You really have systems. You have, you have no free time at all because any day or weekend or holiday or, or even with Amazon night, you may have to work. You may not have to work, but you don't know that until soon before that moment happens. And so the time you're not working isn't even really free because you can't like plan on having it. Yeah, exactly. It's very frustrating. And it's one of those things that I tried to to try to make people feel how frustrating and exhausting that is. Because, again, like a lot of these things seem small individually. I've gotten some like responses to the book that are like, oh, another whiny millennial. Like, what shouldn't people? <laughs> Did Brett Stevens like, write you? Yeah, <laughs> or, or, or or Joe Biden. <laughs> oh, that would have been nice. I would have liked that very much. But uh, no, the uh, but yeah, like it's. I honestly think it is very difficult for workers to complain about some of these things. I think because of the difference in understanding of what work is and what a job is and what you should have to give up to be able to, you know, feed your family. And when people complain about like, oh, like the time clock marks me late if I'm 
30 seconds late. And because of that, I end up spending, but I can't clock in earlier than my shift begins. So I always end up arriving 10 minutes early and then just standing by the stupid time clock waiting to clock in. And because if I don't, I'm going to get yelled at for it. That's almost embarrassing to complain about, I think, for a lot of people. Like, Even I was, though it's essentially wage theft. Yeah, like, exactly. But like, people, a lot of people don't see it that way. And a lot of people will yell at you for complaining about something that they have to do too and don't complain about, I guess. It's very Stockholm syndrome-y. It's hard for people to complain about those things because, again, the understanding of work is so different. I've been wondering about this a lot in that, like, I am not sure whether those, like, whether, like, Biden and and Stevens and, and those people legitimately do not know. Right. Because it's been so long since they've had a real job and they're just kind of going on sort of like whatever pure ideology is driving them. Uh, and, and this, like, understanding of, like, American work ethic and whatever. Or whether they do know, but are just bad people. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there's the Stockholm Syndrome thing. Well, in terms of bad, in terms of bad, the, the people who probably are bad people, for sure, like the people who run Amazon, you write about how they, they sort of take advantage of the general shittiness of the economy to make it seem like absurdly bad benefits are, in fact, huge perks. I mean, benefits that are so bad that they're not benefits at all, like unpaid time off they sold that you can use in an emergency, unpaid. Yep. You, you write, quote, if some HR director at a newspaper had tried to tell me that being able to stay home sick without pay, without getting fired up to a point was a legit job perk, I would have been, la I would have laughed him out of the room. Right. And I honestly wish that I had done slightly more research into like Amazon's actual benefit package because pretty much across the board, like when people when I was talking to people at Amazon, their concerns were like really different from the concerns of like general mainstream media coverage of the conditions in warehousing, specifically Amazon fulfillment centers. Like one of the things that pretty much everybody said was like, oh, yeah, if you can if you can, you know work your way into full time, then the benefits are pretty good. But I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means to other people, whether that means just right. like, oh, health insurance where the copay isn't like 200 bucks, like because people also thought that unpaid time off was legitimately generous, like that was a good, desirable thing. And they did say that it gave them a lot more freedom than other jobs. And Oh, can I actually uh, – so I do want to, like, sort of clarify that I am not in particular attacking Amazon uh, because they have been, like, all about – like, ever since the stu – <laughs> they're, not, they're not happy with your oh, book? Oh, no, they are. They are not happy with my book, which I find surprising because I feel like I am really clear that, like, the things that they get dinged for in the mainstream media are not actually what the actual problem is. Like – the queues of ambulances outside of the Pennsylvania Amazon that got all of the yeah, attention. Yeah, or like people peeing in bottles or, or or like the idea that like people somehow aren't allowed or, or like they're forbidden from taking restroom breaks. That isn't quite 
accurate. But well, anyway, let me let me just read. You're emphasizing the psychic destruction that Amazon causes. Yeah, exactly. It's more subtle. It's yeah, more so interesting. They, so what did they what did they say about All right, your so book? So what they what they have been saying is quote. For someone who only worked at Amazon for approximately 11 days, Emily Gindelsberger's statements are not an accurate portrayal of working in our buildings. We are proud of our safe workplaces, and her allegations are demeaning to our passionate employees, whose pride and commitment are what make the Amazon customer experience great. We encourage anyone to come see for themselves what it's like to work at the Amazon Fulfillment Center she worked at by taking a free public tour of the site. Learn more at Amazon.com slash FC Tours. So... Okay, so the approximately 11 days, whenever once somebody says approximately and then like a really specific number like 11, you know there's some like shit going on there. So basically, I got the flu during my third week of work. So I uh, I had to leave early a couple days because I was really like dizzy. And then a couple days after that, I had to call out from the whole shift. And they don't count my orientation, and they don't count when we were sent home early on Christmas Eve. So basically, any time it seems like they, I didn't work the full like six thirty a.m. to six p.m. shift that I was scheduled for, they don't count that as a day of work. Also, which is like, ironic and revealing, actually. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's kind of there was this like memo in the book, uh, the Everything Store, uh, which is sort of like this like history slash biography of Amazon slash Jeff Bezos, which is basically the same thing. Um, And there's this memo called Amazon.love where it gets into all of these things about like what makes a cool company that can basically get away with treating people like Walmart, treating their workers like Walmart. Yeah, he actually lists a bunch of different companies and explains why some have good and bad reps, right? Exactly, yeah. And it's been interesting to see them sort of coming after me like that and it's sort of ignoring all of the ideas they have of like how to be a cool company (laughs) it's just like you're not supposed to be a bully you're not supposed to like you know punch down you're supposed to like you're not be bothered when people you know write uh, don't act like exile you yeah exactly so i don't know it's just been kind of funny watching uh this all go down it's been interesting and i also just another another thing that i want to say in response to i only worked there 11 days which i worked there for a month it's not just my experience either i interviewed dozens and dozens and dozens of people who had worked in various amazon warehouses and the one that i i specifically worked in and pretty much everybody shared my experience I actually made a point of seeking out people who did enjoy their job and interviewing them to see why they enjoyed their job. And uh, even they, after a couple of drinks, referred to the place as like oppressive. So even that there was this sort of push and pull of ideas, like the the ability, it was sort of like Catholicism in a weird way, like the idea, the ability to hold two contradictory ideas in your head at the same time. Well, it's just a, survivor, a survival skill, right? Because you yeah. you did speak to people who took said that they liked their job and took pride in how good they were at their job mm-hmm. and they characterized coworkers who couldn't hack it as lazy and incapable but then after a few drinks like it turns out everything's not going so smoothly can, can you talk about that dynamic this this taking pride as a necessary survival skill versus because on the, on the one hand it's a necessary survival skill on the other hand it's a mindset that makes collective action to change the situation 
very, very difficult. Yeah, it it is. Like there's that I think I use that Che quote about like if you seethe with indignity at every every injustice, then you are a comrade of mine. Or and like, but that's the thing, you cannot survive and remain sane in like modern low wage work if you can't repress that. You especially if there's no real avenue for unionization. Like if if, if you can't do anything with the rage. Uh, it'll just consume you. Yeah, totally understandable. I did definitely find that I that women tended to be were the vast majority of the the people that I found who were like into these jobs and were willing wanted to go on the record as like enjoying these jobs. Women are conditioned to put up with uh, intolerable jobs and then take pride in them at out of the formal workplace as well. Yeah, exactly. And I also think it is like specifically the the people that I talked to who said that they liked being measured and timed and monitored so closely, they all mentioned that because that it was because at other jobs like in restaurants and and stuff like that, they always ended up doing somebody else's job and not getting recognized for it. Wow. And it and I think that they found this to be better than that. Uh, better than just sort of like going all their extra work going unnoticed. Let's talk about the the technological monitoring of workers' time, movements, everything at at Amazon. The the tra- your trainer or someone like that at the Amazon warehouse, maybe for the temp agency that hired you, said, "quote Amazon knows how your day is spent. We have a saying in Spanish, siempre va te veo." That means there's always an eye out there on you. There will always be an eye on you. So make sure you behave. That's entirely dystopian. We'll, we'll, explain the this technologized control, what it, what it looks and feels like on the job. So the monitoring in the Amazon warehouse. So basically, I was a, I was a picker. And that is, I think, generally regarded as one of the least desirable jobs in uh, Amazon warehousing. In older fulfillment centers like the one that I was in, which was SDF-8 in um, southern Indiana, which is like right across the river from Louisville, it was, it's a job where you walk around and you push a cart and uh, you have a big yellow tote on your cart and you have a scan gun or like an RFID scanner like you would see in a grocery. So the scanner sort of like subdivides all these little smaller pieces of the task that you're supposed to be doing, which is to, you know, go find the item, scan it, and put it in there in your bag, and then continue on. So you would scan your tote to request a new item, and then it would give you this like five-digit very long sort of like string of numbers that was sort of like the the coordinates of where this thing was. And you would also get a description of what the item was. Every single time you scanned something, the next little step of the task would come up. And also a little bar at the bottom would start just ticking down the number of seconds that <sighs> you still had left to do it. And it was, again, I sometimes think that it's embarrassing to complain about something like that for a lot of workers who were raised in a very like hardcore work ethic family 
but it is so exhausting <laughs> like to have a countdown a second by second countdown on whether you're you know making rate or not going every single minute of your shift that you're not on break or lunch so yeah so you and go the around. scanner is directing you as you walk about 15 miles a day across yeah. this fulfillment center yeah, I was uh, I snuck in a, a step counter and I generally got between like 13 and, and 16 miles a day of walking. It was quite a bit. Uh, it was it was pretty painful. Yes. So the so you walk around and you're out in the what they call the mod, which is this like huge, huge thing of modular shelving uh, that's made out of cardboard. It's this big maze almost it's you you look in any direction and it it looks like the shelves go on like to infinity and so you're you're walking around and the algorithm that sort of directs like what they call the pick path which is you know the path that you take from item to item like a it has to do with you know what's been ordered and and all that but it also has to do with keeping you apart from other workers and that's partially because the to maximize the amount of storage space they have, each aisle is only wide enough for, for one cart. Like, if two people come from different ends, it's like a one-way street. Someone has to back out. So they try and keep you as far apart as possible so that that doesn't happen. But it also, I think, is probably so that you never really have a chance to, like, talk to anybody or say hello or, like, get an opportunity to get a reason to stop working for a second. Uh, and just like be a human being, like talking to another human being. And perhaps not coincidentally, that's not the sort of job environment that's conducive to building the sort of shop floor social ties within which, say, labor organizing might take root. Oh, absolutely. And also the turnover there is so wild. It would be really, really, really hard to organize. Like, I, I, I can absolutely see why it's been so difficult to start getting organizing going in 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 fulfillment centers a you don't really have and this is true of all the jobs like you're alone pretty much all the time and you're also on your feet pretty much all the time and all of the all of the other places like packing or like other jobs you are kind of set up the the stations are set up so that you are not within speaking distance to anybody like you, you mentioned earlier, like the fifteen miles a day, and that is something that that does tend to get picked up on by, like people reviewing the book, like that, and like we were talking about earlier with the with the on call ambulances hanging out during a heat wave, and another thing, another detail that tends to appear in every like review of the book is that that fulfillment centers have. Vending machines that you can get free um, over-the-counter pain medicine from. See, that's the thing. The, that is not the actual problem. The pain, it's really easy to sort of communicate painful things to other human beings because we all have the same sort of experience of, of pain. There is no... And there's something powerful about the image of a painkiller vending machine on the job. about what yeah, that, exactly. About what that job feels like. Yes. And the thing that is not quite on the nose about the about people focusing on those things is that was not like I never was 
going to walk out because it hurt so much. Um, and again, I think I was probably one of the more one of the better off people physically working um, in my mod, at least in that, like, you know, I was 32 when I was doing this and like, I'm fairly fit. I bought myself these warehousing shoes that like sort of make it less bad for your knees to walk on concrete all day. A lot of the people that I worked with were older, like they were like my parents' age or, you know, in their 50s. And I've had some response to this being like, oh, well, like surprise, like white collar person, like can't hack has it, a, has a real job and can't and like can't hack it. But like I had it the easiest of all of these people because I didn't have a family. There were pregnant I, women walking those miles. Yeah, like there were there were like three in my mod and it just I, I just couldn't believe it every time I saw them. And it was like not a little pregnant. It was like a lot pregnant. It was just completely bizarre. So the idea that like my experience was somehow worse than other people's is not really accurate. I had a lot of advantages that other people did not. Like one of the things that I uh, didn't really mention in the book, I think, was because I worked in an almost entirely apparel uh, like fulfillment center, my education actually did really help me with doing with being able to make rate. So it, there was this one area of the warehouse where everything was where it was like all coats and and jackets and stuff. It was like this huge dry cleaning rack. Uh, on both sides. And it just like sort of stretched on as far as you could see in both directions. So I was in there looking for something one day and I actually did run into another guy. And usually when you run into uh, another picker, that means that like they're having a problem with something or, or they're like running behind or something. Because the algorithm so, could be should be keeping you apart. Yes, exactly. Uh, so we were in the same aisle and he was just like kind of looking very lost and uh, he, like, looks at me, and he's just like, the fuck is a bolero jacket? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, oh, I know that one, because I used to do, like, copywriting for, for anthropology for a hot minute, and I am very familiar with clothing terminology. So I think it was a lot easier for me to keep up than it was for, like, you know, some dude in his 50s who does not, has no reason to know what a bolero jacket is. <laughs> Returning to the point of the real problem not being, or that not the core problem not being physical pain, but yeah. one of the things I, I I loved about it is how you take time to just skewer this sort of Steven Pinkerton style optimism about <laughs> the improving quality of life that people experience. Because yeah, there are certain data points like how likely you are to get killed on the job, which might make you think that work in the U.S. has indeed gotten better. But mm -hmm. in fact, you write that research shows that, quote, we hate our jobs more than at any time in history and spend more time at those jobs we hate than ever. In other words, OSHA statistics just like can't fully grasp what's wrong with the lived reality of work. Explain how this is, what you found in your experience working these jobs and what you found in your research in the scholarly literature. So what I definitely found in in working these jobs is that it is really hard to describe what makes them so miserable because there aren't really that many statistics to to focus on. And I think it's this sort of 
since the 1970s or so, maybe it's as if like we've started we started like fetishizing technology and like logic and like this idea that, you know, it's possible to be this perfectly rational being like like homo economicus or or whatever, that if the statistics are so good and this is like Pinker's basically entire arg- argument, right? Like that. Look at all of these great measures. Look at all these great statistics. Hello, well, I called obvious. him Stephen Pinkerton. That was such you a did Freudian call him slip. Stephen Pinkerton. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to keep using that. No apology. I'm not correcting that. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> cool, cool. Um, so yeah, like so, like that is Pinker's sort of foundational idea. Is like this idea that. It's possible to explain whether people are happy or miserable by using statistical measures of, like, GDP or – I actually take a lot of issue with, like, Pinker's uh, stuff about general violence. Uh, I do not find them to be persuasive. I'll say that. Uh, but there's this idea that, like, this fetishization of logic leads someone to this – point where you're just where are so out of touch with the idea of like feelings and like your daily experience of life being they start being thought of as almost like beside the point perception gets described as like misperception but perception is all we have it's our embodied lived experiences yeah this is what we live (laughs) in like we yeah like it's ridiculous to say like we don't live in spreadsheets we live in our bodies and minds (laughs) exactly right and and like so it, it gets you to this place where you're arguing, like, look at all these statistics. You all should be happier. <laughs> like, <laughs> why aren't you happy? <laughs> Instead of, like, maybe questioning the, you know, the statistics that you're using to conclude that people are better off now. Yeah, the more reasonable research question would be, why are you so unhappy? Exactly. And it's it's just the same thing as, the, like, this sort of claim that gets bandied about a lot like oh capitalism it's lifted billions out of poverty i just wonder sometimes if people are actually happier if their lives are better working 12 hours a day in a factory or something and not being able to see their family than it would have been like subsistence farming or other you know jobs that are hard and bad and and not good and not a job that i would want to do myself but they are not chronically stressful in the same way that modern jobs are. And there's a really big difference between hard work and chronic stress because you can adjust to hard work, like your muscles get bigger or or like get better at writing or you get better at things, but it, you cannot adjust to chronic stress. Or if you do, the adjustment looks like basically depression and anxiety uh, and sort of like a lot of the things that you're sort of seeing en masse in particularly first world countries, because I think that's where things like mental health gets measured. I don't know. Like, it just seems ridiculous to look at the amount of people with treated and or like diagnosed and probably undiagnosed mental illness. I It's crazy to look at that and then conclude that people should be happy. And they're only unhappy because of like some personal choice that they made to think of things in a bad way. And it seems like maybe even the more the even more unassailable stat that you 
have because I think I think maybe like some people might be like, oh, well, people are just like identifying the same feelings they might have had before as depression because the terminology is in in greater circulation. But yeah, one stat that I don't see how people could really quibble with is how many people are having trouble sleeping and that number just skyrocketing like yeah over time yeah that is one of the depression and anxiety are so gaseous i guess like they're so hard to like pin down i suppose uh that it is really hard to come up with a actual like real objective measurable thing to to but i did find that sleeplessness because of stress is a really good one i think because like your happiness in general has so much to do with whether you're like getting enough sleep (laughs) it's kind of ridiculous like the degree to which those are correlated basically it's like having leisure time and having enough sleep are the two big correlates with describing yourself as happy you write that the origin one of the 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 core drivers of turning service industry workers lives into just like seamless webs of stress is the lack of control. That's a point that you return to constantly in your book. Mm -hmm. Because there's a really interesting, like, A, it offers sort of a link back to um, Frederick Taylor and Taylorism, because his entire, you know, his entire methodology was to remove as much control from workers as possible. And since that sort of got encoded into sort of the way management works now, the more control that you can remove, the more autonomy that you can remove from workers' uh, jobs, like the more profitable you generally are. But like- And this is in the late 19th and early 20th century that Taylor's at large? Yeah, Taylor, yeah, Taylor was like, he started in like the 1890s and he published his sort of magnum opus, uh, scientific management in like 1911, I believe. Experimenting uh, on the working class people of Pennsylvania. Yep, Bethlehem. And, and Midvale Steel, right? And Midvale, in, yeah. In uh, Maniunk in Philly. Mm-hmm. He was one of those sort of like original true believers in the idea that like, the way to lift the like lower classes out of poverty was by using tools and his scientific management to make it possible for them to be like way more productive than they would be otherwise. Like if they were, for example, deciding on the best way to do something themselves rather than having somebody time you with a stopwatch and then like tell you exactly how you're supposed to do it. He was one of the original true believers in the ability of like increased productivity at work to like obviously that would mean that companies would cut their workers in on the increases in their productivity and so they those people would the poor people would make more money and then poverty is fixed but he did not seem and he did seem to really believe that i think he was he was kind of one of the original people, like people who still believe that today, like after 50 years of like increased productivity, just skyrocketing productivity and like stagnant wages, like obviously workers are not being cut in on the increases in their productivity. I think they kind of were back in the back in the day, a little more than they are now. But I feel like he didn't really have the data yet that that 
wasn't going to work. So I can't decide whether I think he was well-intentioned or just like completely had blinders on about how much people hated him. (laughs) But even if he thought optimistically that workers would be cut in, which during the Fordist uh, New Deal era, they they were to, to some significant degree, it was still premised on this almost eugenic understanding of what it would feel like for workers to be reduced to repetitive tasks that deprive them of autonomy. Yeah, like Ford and Taylor and a lot of these like management consultant types, like especially like the early ones that were doing this in, you know, manufacturing and and steel mills and stuff. uh, They definitely, and I think it was sort of like the spirit of the age too with, you know, eugenics, forced forced sterilizations (laughs) and eugenics and stuff like that. But they definitely... They make it really clear in their writing that they do not see the people who are working these jobs that have been tailorized or these assembly line jobs, that they do not see them as the same as themselves. Like they almost see them as a like a different species. Like I want to quote from Ford here. You you quote a passage of his <clears throat> repetitive labor, the doing of one thing over and over again and always in the same way is a terrifying prospect to a certain kind of mind. It is terrifying to me. I could not possibly do the same thing day in and day out. But to other minds, perhaps I might say to the majority of minds, repetitive operations hold no terrors. In fact, to some types of minds, thought is absolutely appalling. To them, The ideal job is one where the creative instinct need not be expressed. The average worker, I am sorry to say, wants a job in which he does not have to put forth much physical exertion. Above all, he wants a job in which he does not have to think. Those who have what might be called the creative type of mind and who thoroughly abhor monotony are apt to imagine that all other minds are similarly restless and therefore to extend quite unwanted sympathy to the laboring man who day in and day out performs almost exactly the same operation. (laughs) Yeah, Ford was a real cool dude. (laughs) Say a little bit about those kind of like underlying presumptions here about what sort of humans working class people are. I feel like the like sort of the just the name Taylorism has really gone out of style. And I think if anyone made a statement like that, that that Ford quote that you just did today, people would not stand for that. Like they that I think times have changed enough that that is clearly somebody that's just closing his eyes to reality. And, you know, we've sort of gotten over the idea that, like, poor people aren't, you know, actual human beings. (laughs) Uh, Mostly, we've gotten over that. The thing is that, like, it's that idea, that sort of ethos that Taylor and Ford both had, this idea that you, like, should, like, that these low-wage workers you should be able to treat them very differently than you would enjoy being treated yourself because they are like a lower form of being in a weird way. And that giving them autonomy is actually a sort of a, of a torture to them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, and not only that is, it's like, 
difficult for them, but they'll always use it to just fuck around. I don't know. I'm still baffled by it. Like Frederick Taylor, like he got his experience in steel. Like he was a he was a rich dude, and uh, he was supposed to go to Harvard, but he just didn't want to do it. And so he just went and got a job in a steel mill, like sort of at the bottom and kind of worked his way up. And it kind of baffles me that he could like work with all of these people. And they at the time, there was like a sort of proto unionization thing called like soldiering in which it it was like very it was kind of informal. But the skilled workers in the factory would sort of set the pace of work at a reasonable thing so that like you were not working yourself to death and that one person could not screw up the curve by like working crazy hard and, you know, making everybody else look bad. And Taylor thought that this was literally evil. Like he describes it as evil. Like he saw it very much in moral terms. And which is why Taylorism, he saw it as a way to achieve de-skilling, which in and of itself undermines the 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 shop floor power of skilled workers that yeah. is so abhorred. Exactly. But I am just so I don't know, like that he came up with them and was not able to realize that, oh, they're doing this out of self-preservation. Of course they're doing that. It's self-defense. But yeah, he just sort of saw it as evil and uh like this moral failing. And that fundamental sort of idea of of Taylorism that like not wanting to work as hard as possible every single minute that you're on the clock is like a moral failing. Uh, And that idea has really gotten, even though like Taylorism is sort of about as valid, it, it, it doesn't really give any better good vibes than, you know, the word eugenics does today. That central premise that like you have to strip all of the autonomy away from unskilled workers or they will take advantage of you and screw around because they're bad, because they're evil, because they're like fundamentally flawed. That is really encoded into kind of all of the computer business systems that are used in the modern era to sort of, you know, enforce the work conditions that I write about. And it's an it's an ideology that can always help to justify a reality that's so patently otherwise. I mean, you can go all the way back to as long as there's been labor history under capitalism and see workers fighting for the right to control their time. You know, in 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 eighteen twenty, like in in Pawtucket, which is right uh, over the border from Providence and was one of the birthplaces of the American Industrial Revolution. In 1828, mill workers pooled their money to build a clock mounted on the steeple of a church overlooking the mills because the mills imposed clock time on people who had previously lived by natural agricultural rhythms. In the mill, management was the only one with access to a clock because people didn't have have watches. And so management would use it against workers to trick them out of their wages. And this is something that people have consistently resisted, even like – uh, Lordstown comes to mind in 1972 when mm-hmm. workers revolt not over wages and benefits, but against not only a speed up of the line, but but the control of the line, the domi- the do- their domination by the line. I think that the thing that people like, because everybody hated Taylor, 
uh, like at least all the workers hated Taylor <laughs> when he came to their factory and like started timing them. Like they called him, they called him Speedy Taylor, and like they really hated him. Okay, so I think that like what generally gets focused on about what workers hated so much about Taylor and like the Taylorized workplace is the like the speed up and the timing, uh, and and like working you know, working twice as hard for like 1.25 amount the pay or whatever. Honestly, like just reading about places that sort of resisted Taylorism when it was sort of like popular and going around, like they don't mention, like they do mention like that it's usually like physically exhausting trying to, you know, do two or three times as much work in a shift as you, as you were before. What really seems to get people's goat, like, so to speak, is, like, is that they hated being, like, it sucked all of the their enjoyment out of work. Because it crushed their autonomy. Yeah, like, there is something very satisfying about building things, about, like, even if you are... I don't know, even maybe on an assembly line. But even the assembly line is itself a subdivision of the, you know, craft workers, like direct access to completing a a full product. It's like a part of you making a part of something. Yeah, exactly. Like even even like Adam Smith got into this in like Wealth of Nations, like because like there's that famous example of like division of labor with with the pin factory. And that gets cited a, a lot. But I didn't really even realize was in the book until I until I read it uh, was that like afterwards, like he sort of like openly acknowledges that the more labor is divided and the smaller the step that each worker does like repetitively all all day, the more it makes you he's basically describing like depression. But yeah, what people seem to hate the most was that work was no longer enjoyable and again like adam smith gets into that with after his famous example of like the pin factory as the demonstration of the benefits of the division of labor like how how much the crazy amount that you could produce when each man was making like was doing one step of the creation of a of a nail rather than you know every single guy making a nail start to finish but then he also goes on to talk about like how that is basically like he describes all the ill mental effects of doing repetitive labor that's one small task all day because you sort of lose the ability to have any satisfaction in your work. And when you spend a really good chunk of your life doing something that where the possibility of work satisfaction has been sort of like purposely drained then yeah you're you're gonna end up really miserable and that's the thing like adam smith knew it way back when and and marks 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 knew knew it it. and he called it alienation exactly yeah uh i tend to go for the adam smith one because i think it's more surprising to people that that's in there like it surprised the hell out of me but yeah like yeah marks absolutely knew it and but we seem to have like sort of completely forgotten it today. The the fact extremely subdivided labor is extremely unpleasant <laughs> because we're not robots. We're not we're like humans and humans are a very, you know, curious, like inventive, creative 
species, regardless of whether, you know, Ford thinks that, you know, low-wage workers are in fact just like little drone bees or whatever. One particularly insidious Taylorist innovation that you experienced is companies like Amazon and Uber, because you also, this all kind of goes back to this amazing cover story that very rarely for a local all-weekly cover story went nationally viral uh, on, on driving for Uber. These companies using gamification to motivate even greater productivity from their workers without any like real compensation for that increase in productivity. Amazon has has vendor dollars. Uber has all sorts of tricks. It, explain Explain how gamification works and why some workers embrace the game and take pride in winning it? Well, like gamification, it's more of just adding sort of like different incentives at different times, sort of like to change things up so it's less boring, I gather. So at Amazon, one of the things was called Power Hour. And uh, it was if you were if you made 100 picks or something in that hour, then you would like get a prize, which I I later found out was like a a a dollar that was proprietary to Amazon that you could use at some of the vending machines, <laughs> which was interesting. Inclu- including the pain machine. Uh those were free. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Penny. I know. Basically all of it is just we have gotten like particularly like in advertising like research and stuff like that we have gotten incredibly good at basically like hacking humans human brain and behavior and one of the things that like what is it did that weirdo holly just introduce that bill that would ban like um addictive stuff in uh in in apps and technologies like things like infinite scroll or like autoplay on yeah. Netflix. Yeah. Like uh, that he seems to be a weird dude, but that uh, is something that does kind of need to be addressed. Right. And that like a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of companies are taking advantage of like psychology basically and like and science about human behavior to kind of hack our brains sort of. And that is one way in that, like, if you know that your job is so monotonous and boring that people will be desperate for sort of anything to change it up a little bit, then, yeah, having a power hour where you go, where you compete to see, like, who's the best picker, who can pick the most things in that in that hour. Because people didn't, like, most people who, like, actually tried for the power hour were not doing it because they, like, could actually use that dollar for for the vending machine like they weren't doing it for the prize it was more of doing it for just like something to do like i found myself doing that a couple times not during power hour but i just was like i wonder if i go as fast as i possibly humanly can i wonder how it's like the very system that that is that is making people so miserable by denying them any autonomy creating an illusion of autonomy that is has like some maybe minor if kind of perverse therapeutic value yeah and to, like to, to squeeze more work out of them, yeah. And it's also like a way for to 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 give people positive feedback, I suppose. Uh, in that, like, people do like to be told that they've been doing a good job, and there's not that many opportunities for that within just like day to day life at at Amazon or whatever. Um, 
But, you know, having a power hour every day, like, means that, like, if you do power hour and you get over 100, like, people, you'll get, like, a little attaboy, good job, or, you know, or at least, like, this, like, token of, you did a really good job, thank you, even if it's not really anything. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has tons of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Empire of Borders, The Expansion of the U.S. Border Around the World by Todd Miller. The 21st century has witnessed the rapid hardening of international borders. Security, surveillance, and militarization are widening the chasm between those who travel where they please and those whose movements are restricted. But that is only part of the story. As journalist Todd Miller reveals in Empire of Borders, the nature of U.S. borders has changed. These boundaries have effectively expanded thousands of miles outside of U.S. territory to encircle not simply American land, but Washington's interests. Resources, training, and agents from the United States infiltrate the Caribbean and Central America. They reach across the Canadian border, and they go even farther afield, enforcing the division between Global South and North. The highly publicized focus on a wall between the United States and Mexico misses the bigger picture of strengthening border enforcement around the world. Empire of Borders is a tremendous work of narrative investigative journalism that traces the rise of this border regime. It delves into the practice of extreme vetting, which raised the possibility of ideological tests and cyber policing for migrants and visitors, a level of scrutiny that threatens fundamental freedoms and allows, once again, for America's security concerns to infringe upon the sovereign rights of other nations. In Syria, Guatemala, Kenya, Palestine, Mexico, the Philippines, and elsewhere, Miller finds that borders aren't making the world safe. They are the front line in a global war against the poor. Empire of Borders, the expansion of the U.S. border around the world, by Todd Miller. Out now from Verso Books. One thing that I wanted to talk about in terms of the effect of all of this compounding stress that sort of explodes at the job and then spreads throughout low-wage service workers' entire lives is how that stress turns to rage and fuses get short. You told one of your coworkers at Converges, the call center, which we haven't talked about yet, quote, I literally never used to honk the horn. My husband even makes fun of me about it. I thought of all the people who'd be honking like maniacs all the time as almost a different species, like crazy, angry people. But now that I think about it, I'm sure some of them were just trying not to get attendance points. That was one of the sort of main things I I came out of this with. And that sort of like helped me, I feel like, understand the situation right now a little better. If I can give people anything with this book... Like, having done all this research and worked these jobs and, like, experienced the levels of 
you know, chronic stress that are, you know, inescapable in these jobs. Um, and, you know, having experienced like PTSD and different like at a, for another point in my life, but like having experienced depression, having experienced anxiety, like and having done a lot of research on all of these things definitely makes me feel like I understand what the hell is going on right now, like a little better. And to think twice before you harshly judge or consider calling DHS on the poor woman on the subway yelling at their kids. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like we were talking earlier about chronic stress and how you can't really adapt to it. Or rather, when you do adapt to it, it's in like very, very unhelpful ways for living in the modern world. So when you think about it, like from an evolutionary perspective, and yes, I am on a mission to like reclaim evolutionary psychology for the left, because right now it is very silly that whenever anyone talks about evolutionary psychology, like I know I at least automatically am like, Ugh, I'm about to be told why I'm a slut or something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't have to be neo-eugenics. It does not. <laughs> it's really fascinating. It's all, all it is is just thinking about evolution and what we evolved to do well and what we did not evolve to do well. And, you know, the way that we used to live for, you know, the vast, vast majority of, you know, humanity's history. So for the vast majority of history, like, Pinker is right about things. Like, it would have been very a very, very hard life to be like a, you know, a hunter-gatherer or like an early man. You know, you'd eat a lot of bugs, you know, you and your, you know, your your children would like a lot of your children would probably die. You were likely to die in childbirth. Like there's all obviously like there's antibiotics now. Things are much better in a lot of ways. However, the life of somebody living in prehistory or just like most of humanity's history was difficult, but it was not stressful exactly. Yeah. And and this is this is something that anthropologists have because obviously they're they're present day hunter-gatherers who are under just incredible stress from the the, the encroaching capitalist right, yeah. world system. But but yeah, I mean this is something that's been shown that it's not it, it's not just this like hellscape that modernity is almost premised on describing it as. Yeah, exactly. Like, it wouldn't make any sense for us to have evolved, like, this nervous system that's doing where if you trigger your fight or flight, like, constantly, it'll just, like, break your body, essentially. It'll, like, just burn all your organs out real fast. So it wouldn't make any sense for us to have evolved that if life was chronically stressful back in the day, because... Yeah, it doesn't make evolutionary sense. But the one way in that it did make sense to uh, sort of get selfish, like, is that the way we adapt to our fight or flight going off, like, dozens and dozens of times a day, like, the only time that that was going to happen in prehistory would be if, like, something was really, really wrong, like, some disaster happened. Because otherwise, like, you might get startled by something you think is a bear or whatever, but, like, that's not going to happen constantly, you know? It's not going to happen like every five minutes. So, but if you think about what sort of an apocalypse 
land would be like. I always picture it as like a volcano going off and then like all the ash just ruins the all the plants and all the herbivores die and then the carnivores start going after humans more. It's like just a very dangerous, dangerous world to be in. That's the situation where you would actually be pinged with, you know, you're with chronic stress all day, dozens and dozens of times. So when you look at that, the behavioral changes that have been, you know, documented that are a response to chronic stress actually kind of make a lot of sense in that, like, when you're chronically stressed, you tend to get, like, more aggressive, you tend to get, like, irritable, you tend to fear outsiders more, you tend to be less compassionate to people who are not like yourself or who you're not able to identify as, like, sort of being vaguely like you. Others. Yeah, the other, exactly. You tend to violence more. I definitely found that to be, I definitely was more irritable when I was working at these jobs. Like I, and I was in. What did it feel like? What did it feel like uh, running late when you were trying to grab drive through fast food lunch at the call center? It was, it was so fucking stressful. <laughs> it was stupid. Like, but on the one hand, it feels kind of ridiculous to stress out to almost have a panic attack about being two minutes late back from lunch. But on the other hand, it's really not because like you will automatically get points on your record if you're two minutes late from lunch. And like, I know that I like when I would, I tried like one time to get lunch and it's a very closely timed half hour break. And uh, the first time I didn't make it like, and I got stuck behind some woman in a minivan who was, like, making a left turn, and I was almost back, and I had, like, two minutes left on the clock before I was going to be late. And she was just being real pokey about it, and I just, like, laid on the horn and just, like, was just like, come on, lady! <laughs> Fucking move it! And I don't do that. It was very interesting to see sort of how how much my tolerance for stuff decreased and how how much more irritable I was when I was doing these jobs. There's a concept that organizes this system on the boss end called time theft. Yeah. Where does that idea come from and what does it mean? Well, I know I first did, I first came in uh contact with that phrase uh actually in nickel and dimed. I believe that was the first mention I'd seen of it, but, you know, I I didn't actually research that. But, like, Barbara Ehrenreich talks about uh, at Walmart when she's working there how, like, she uses the phrase time theft a lot and how managers were very, very, very motivated to prevent what they called time theft, which was basically any time that you were being paid when you were not actively, like, working as hard as you could. Anytime that you are not being basically sort of a perfect robot worker, they have sort of rebranded that as 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 time theft, like in a way that's people like people actually stealing. said things to you like people actually said things to you like how would you feel if you were Jeff Bezos and had this stolen from you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I don't think people with like reasonable jobs sort of really hear about time theft because Again, one of the one of the responses from sort of more upper class people that I've gotten just to like the orientations and stuff uh, that I describe in the book was like, if somebody talked to me like that, I would quit immediately. That is horrible. Like, 
just the sort of indignity, I suppose, of knowing that you are, they don't value you enough to like, just like let you do the things that humans sort of have to do to stay sane. That's like in my in my warehouse. And but the freedom, but the freedom to quit is one that not everyone shares in the same way as as Marx put it. The you know basically like the freedom to quit is the freedom to starve. Exactly. Yeah. Like that's another thing that I've gotten a lot of responses about is like who's holding a gun to their head, and I'm like, ah, capitalism. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, did you read this thing? I don't think you did. I got a bunch after I went on um, Fox Business News. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that was pretty funny. <laughs> R.I.P. your mentions. Yeah, uh, this is why I don't do Twitter. Although I, I mean, I have to do it again now. But your publicist made you. Yeah, <laughs> I hate Twitter. The way this this that time theft it's it's a pretext or a concept that facilitates this this whole system of maximized domination of of worker time that we've been talking about, and one really poignant and chilling example from your book is that from your call center job and I think Western North Carolina is mm-hmm. that right yeah um where you worked for AT&T through this massive subcontractor mm-hmm. called Convergis and you had your bathroom time tracked very closely and you got in trouble for spending too long in the bathroom and you wrote quote a good rule of thumb the more interest management takes in workers use of the bathroom the more that job is going to suck. Call centers really stood out on this point. I could easily fill the next 20 pages with unbelievable stories about call center bathrooms. And originally I did, and then my editor made me cut them. <laughs> my, but they were so insane. They were unbelievable. If I knew where they were in my drafts, which I do not think I do, I would read you some right now. But like it, it was just unbelievable. Like the one that I think I I ended up using was like some woman, like you had to get a, like a doctor's note to, and that was something we were told too. Like if you need to use the bathroom more than twice a shift on your breaks, you need to bring in a doctor's note. Okay, whatever. Yeah, like one lady actually did go get a doctor's note and like due to digestive troubles that she actually chalked up to stress from that job. Um, And so a manager would actually follow her to the bathroom and like listen to her shit to make sure she actually did have diarrhea. That is some crazy shit. <laughs> like that is insane. And there were so many that were just as insane. Like I think somebody had to wear a stopwatch around their neck when they went to the bathroom. Every single minute is accounted for. At, at Amazon, you had a 30-minute lunch break unpaid mm-hmm. and two paid 15-minute breaks, I believe because those two 15-minute breaks are required by law, but arguably Amazon is violating that law because they weren't even really that long because the clock starts when you scan the last item with the scanner that's controlling with your, you know, boss scanner. And and it takes 10 minutes or so to even get to the door where you could have a smoke or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it can sometimes take less. It depends on where you were out in the mod, but it generally took me at least like five minutes to get outside and then I had five minutes to smoke, and then I had five minutes. They measured your breaks by scans. So you were supposed to, like, you scanned your last item, you, like, finished, you closed out your toad or whatever, and that is when your break started. Like, the seconds started counting. And As you're standing in the middle of this multi-football-sized field or whatever yeah, mod. Yes. 
Um, and then you, you know, book it outside. Like I usually tried to walk as fast as I could, even though like that was generally not that fast because my, I was not in <laughs> good shape at the time, like, cause I was in so much pain. Yeah. And then it, your break officially ended when you scanned, when you made your next scan and it was supposed to be 15 minutes from scan to scan. And like, they even acknowledged it at the orientation that one of the things you're not going to like about breaks is that it will take you five minutes to get outside and then you have five minutes to do whatever. And then you one have of the five things you don't like about breaks is that we're not actually really giving you what the spirit of the law and arguably the letter of the law requires. <laughs> well, and that's just another one of those things that is actually like kind of hard to complain about without you know, getting called a, a whiner or whatever, just like, oh, so you, what, you need more than 15 minutes, 15 minutes for your break? Well, yeah. millennials, <laughs> whatever. But like when you, when that's every day and it's every break, it just like filled me with rage, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> I was just like, I am, I am spending so much of my time uh, just like walking around in ways that are, it's just, Yeah. It made me so irritated. What did that look like at the at the call center, this this time management? You were taking these calls and you had to manage this extremely not really complex, more like highly dysfunctional set of interfaces. And you weren't allowed to quote toggle, meaning to pause the barrage of automatic calls that come in the second you finish your last call to deal with these horribly complex dysfunctional programs. Yeah, that was the thing that we got scolded for. It was called toggling. And one of the, basically the, the, the phone system that sent your calls, it was very, very much like an assembly line in that like, it did not matter whether you were done with your work or whatever. The next call was going to come in. The second the call hung up, it, it comes. Yeah. Well, not the second, but usually within like a minute, you had another one. Um, and sometimes like you were supposed to always have 30 seconds. I am almost positive. Like we weren't allowed to bring pretty much anything onto the, onto the floor because I think it's very easy to steal people's, you know, uh, information and identities. So there was like no paper, no phones, no nothing. So I never got a chance to actually really time it, but yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it was less than 30 seconds, uh, at, 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 at very busy times, but it was usually not more than a minute or two. So, yeah, like you have basically no control over there's no pause button. You can't like say like, whoops, I need to go to the bathroom, like pause or like, oh, my God, I'm I'm on the verge of tears because that like lady just called me an incompetent cunt. Like <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to I just need to like like breathe for a couple seconds so I'm not a mess when the next call comes in. The only way that you could stop the calls from coming in was to actually like log out of the entire system. And you were really not supposed to do that because again, like it was a third party thing and they got, you know, paid for the minutes that we were on the phone. And I think no other minutes is what I gathered. Uh, so every minute that we were not actively on the phone, they regarded as like we were losing money for them because they were paying us, but we were not making them any money. You were stealing time. Yeah. Stealing it was time theft. Um, so we got yelled at for, for toggling a lot because that's the thing, like you sometimes do need to pee 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Um, or need to close out a complicated thing you were just doing on the last call. Yeah, yeah, it, that's exactly it. Like, it wasn't even usually for personal reasons. It was usually just that, like, like you were supposed to somehow, like, entice the person into just staying on the phone with you until you were finished with all of their notes and stuff. Uh, but, like, that basically just meant lying to them in order to buy yourself, like, another minute or two to actually finish what you were doing before the next call came in. Yeah, we got yelled at for toggling quite a, a bit, um, and it was called time theft, which, again, I cannot think of any white-collar worker that would put up with that. It's just so obviously ridiculous to white-collar workers, but it was... Well, it was not taken as, like, great by my coworkers. It was not seen as, like, this is just beyond the pale. Like, this is ridiculous. This is insanity. Well, like Ford's sort of eugenicist justification of self-serving eugenicist justification of Taylorism, the time theft rhetoric really just does this big ideological work obscuring the real actual theft going on, a.k.a. Capitalist labor exploitation. Yeah, I'm just like, yeah, they're not going to pay you more than they they're making out of you. Come on, <laughs> that sort of goes against the idea. The whole idea. <laughs> yeah, but what what really drives me nuts about like people that are really into like sort of what they call like economics 101, which is like you know just neoclassical economics or whatever. What I find fascinating about that is that the whole thing is supposed to be a balance of like worker interest and consumer interest and employer interest. And they're all like going to find this equilibrium somewhere like that's beneficial for everybody. But what's really interesting to me is that like, we're fine with two of those three actually doing what they're supposed to do in neoclassical economics in that like they act in their self interest. And they're not supposed to like, customers will go buy the cheapest thing or, or or whatever. And employers will pay people as little as they can uh, for as much work as they possibly can. But when it comes to workers, like actually acting in their own self-interest in the sense that like doing the same thing that economics would describe them doing the same way consumers and uh, employers would, would do it, when they actually try to do do the least amount of work for the most amount of money, we call that like almost immoral. Like it's it's right. like fundamentally bad. And I feel like that It's a revealing contradiction. Yeah. And like that right there is like this huge makes this huge like bubble of arbitrage that various companies can sort of like, you know, stick their little little mosquito nose into and like suck everything out. <laughs> it, but you know, but like that, that arbitrage, they're arbitraging like basically Americans, like what I find to be legitimate, like good work ethic. And, you know, this, this desire to like do a good job and work hard and, and that sort of thing. And that is sort of what right. is being sucked dry right now. So I am, there's a finite amount of that, you know? There's a finite amount of goodwill and, and like, work ethic that can be taken advantage of before people suddenly, like, start, as I think they already have, before people start really declaring en masse, like, this doesn't work anymore. Like, this is This system this is, is not stupid. legitimate, actually. Yeah. I don't respect this system. Yeah. Like, and I honestly think that, like, I don't know whether I'm just an optimist about, about 
people's motivations or, or whatever, but I kind of do chuck a good part of like Trump's election to just people going to vote and saying like, just anything else, anything other than this. Okay. Clinton is definitely more of the same of this Trump. I don't know. It could be crazy. Uh, it could be really bad, but like, it's not this, you know, this that I'm living in. Yeah. You write a little bit about like your coworkers, political opinions. And I just think it's such an important part of the book because the way that professional commentators and high so-called high information voters, <laughs> affluent, often affluent mm-hmm. voters, discuss poor and you know service worker voting decisions, um, both whether they like those decisions or dislike those decisions, is so warped from how people actually approach voting if they vote at all. And this is this whole political aspect of alienation that I think is often missed that you drill down on. You write, quote, News and politics feel just as irrelevant to many of my coworkers' lives as fantasy football does to mine. And I can't blame them, honestly. If you don't believe politicians have the slightest idea what your life is like, when you know that beyond a doubt that they wouldn't last a second at your job, why would you believe that electing anyone would matter to your life one way or the other? And that really resonated with with me, I, I did some a story at City Paper on southwestern Pennsylvania. Speaking of like the autonomy we have, like what the <laughs> hell was I doing on the other side of the state for a week? Um, one of the places near Pittsburgh that I was reported in for the story was this town of Manesson, which has been absolutely devastated by de- deindustrialization. Trump has made at least one visit there. I was in, I think, a Dollar General talking to people, asking them about politics because my story is about politics. And people were more or less like politics is not a sport that I follow. Yeah. Um, Because poor people's lives are both like the most intimately impacted by decisions made by government than anyone. But because they're impacted in such a uniformly negative way, regardless of who's in power. Why care? But the irony then is that that serves people like Jeff, Jeff Bezos just fine. Yeah, exactly. I came out of this project actually quite optimistic about, I don't know, the chances of things actually getting better, because I do think that we have reached the point where, like, people are not willing to put up with this anymore, like, where even people who have not ever had a decent job where they're not constantly timed, you know, like, had a chance to, like, read Marx or, like, do the lots and lots and lots of reading like which takes a lot of time even they like I honestly kind of feel like a lot of the people I talked to had sort of like built class consciousness out of nothing like like without like it was like they reinvented the wheel for themselves sort of and I think that is extremely promising honestly because that's hard to do Right. It's, it's much easier to, like, read things and be like, oh, I get it. Okay. Like, yeah, that's totally right. And it's another thing entirely to just get stoned after work and, and like, just stare at the ceiling and be like, why is everything so bad? Like, what is what is up with this? Are, are you suggesting that they wouldn't be put off by a presidential candidate yelling about income inequality? <laughs> Honestly, I would say that we... I would honestly say that the Democratic Party is going to lose again if they do not 
present themselves as like anything else, like something else, anything else than than what we're doing now, because just poor people didn't really show up uh, because I think they a long time ago recognized that this is not actually going to help them really like it will like who's in power in might have a have some effect on like some cultural things but it will not be changing the degree to which the rate that you have to make it at amazon warehouses or whether you're allowed to hang up on people who are you know calling you a cunt when you're on the phone with them at a call center or whether you're allowed to whether you get ridden up for yelling at a like some crazy woman that hit you with food at McDonald's. Those are... You got mustard thrown at you. I did get mustard thrown at me. And you know what? Mustard Lady, I think, was just also, like, in that same realm of horrible chronic stress. Like, well, I mean, I wanna, I'm sure... Yeah, I want to talk about you've that. Been, yeah, like, so the example I give, like, is you've been to a ton of like school board type zoning meetings and like just like, like these minor things around Philadelphia. And I generally found that every one or like every two or three of those, like you would have somebody in the audience, if it was like an open meeting who would just flip out oh, yeah. <laughs> on whoever it was. Oh yeah. You would say that's in your experience too? Frequent. Yeah. At, Did at, you ever... at, at 440 at the school district meeting yeah. district meet at the SRC meetings. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. It was, it was wild. And it, they, they kind of struck me as kind of insane, uh, like sounding when I, I did that, but did you ever talk to any of them afterwards? Yeah. What would you say like is the mark of a screamer? I felt like with the school reform commission, which was the state run body that controlled Philadelphia school since something like 2001 or 1999, I don't remember when, that it was about what we've been talking about, which is lack of control. It was like the feeling that what they said and had spent hours there waiting to say wouldn't have any effect that turned it up to 11. Yes, absolutely. And I definitely also... Like, after I, you know, talked to them about whatever it was that they were there to talk about, I would just be like, like, how's your life going? What's what's up with you this this month? And they just pretty across the board would just have some insane shit that I could not even believe. Like, some kids in, like, your kid just got shot or your husband's in, in the hospital and you don't know how you're going to pay for it. What and, about the couple you were staying with? I forget where. Oh, yeah. Justin Antoine. Like... They live under an incredible amount of stress. And at first, I just was kind of testy and aggressive sometimes. I kind of wondered about it. But then I sort of like when she invited she was like a real sweetheart. And she sort of invited me to sort of live in their spare bedroom when she figured out that I was living in my car. <laughs> and you were living um, in your car because you wrote this thing without a contract and thus without an advance, just as an aside. Yeah, because I'm a maniac. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Just wanted to make that clear. Go ahead. Yeah. I didn't sell it until after I got home from uh, the second trip, the one to Convergis. Yeah. So they always seem like I try to... 
have like pity, like not pity, but like I try to understand where empathy. screamers are coming from. Yeah, empathy. That's a better word for <laughs> Thank it. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Uh, like I try to have empathy with, with screamers because in a weird way, they are a lot the same. They always seem like they have like the same like ailment. It's like, like it's like somebody with chicken pox or something coming in. You're just like, oh, yeah, that's obviously someone with chicken pox. And with like screamers, it's kind of like, oh, this is obviously someone who is losing their fucking mind because of stress. And maybe a job just like yours. Yeah, exactly. Like the 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 worst bitching out I ever got at Convergis, like, and the one that got to me the most was a woman who was on her lunch break at another call center. Because I know exactly what she was dealing with. She had called in a bunch of times. She had a complicated problem. Uh, she was working during the times that uh, she could call other call centers, obviously, especially us. So she had to always do it on her lunch. And she had spent the last month trying to fix something on her bill at her lunch break. And every single time she spent the entire lunch break talking on the phone and it didn't get fixed. And I understand why that is so infuriating. I was not very good at my job yet because I was still like in training. They were just having us take real calls when we were not yet able to to deal with most problems. And the customer experience is systematically determined to often be a horrible one, not because of the call center of what the call center workers are doing, but because of how the system is set up. When I was on the Obamacare exchange and the rollout was a total disaster mm-hmm. and I spent hours on the phone with call center workers, I think I normally re- tried to be a nice person, but it, if I remember correctly, I lost it a few times and I don't feel good about that, but I really... I felt like it's, I had no yeah, control. It's, it's I felt like hard. I had no control. And yeah, I was exactly. like, I, I'm I'm trying to buy health insurance. <laughs> like, why isn't this working? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but actual pro tip for listeners, if you call someone and you er- become convinced that they are not competent enough to do your thing, just hang up. Don't scream at them. It's not going to make anything better. Call, Hang up. They'll they'll be happy because their average call time will go down, although it probably will. It'll probably mess with other metrics, but just call back. You'll get someone else. How many and, times do you have to ask for a manager to get one? Uh, three. Okay. And speaking of three times, uh, another point I wanted to make about how the system's set up to make both workers and customers' lives miserable at call centers is that you have these customers calling you and your coworkers for help because they have some problem with their AT&T plan. But you and your coworkers were evaluated on whether or not you could talk them into buying something. You could only you were told you could only stop making sales pitches after you heard a clear no three times. Yep. That was not great. <laughs> In a lot of those situation that I actually kind of felt unethical trying to sell these people something because half the time it was people calling in to set up with like a payment plan because they didn't have like 40 bucks to pay their phone bill that month like and and you're trying to like sell them like some something they don't or need something. or want yeah and I'm just like I, sorry I know you don't really want this and you definitely shouldn't buy it but uh <laughs> Uh, how about this tablet deal? Or like, how about uh, Uverse Internet or DirecTV? 
But yeah, that was that was pretty crappy. But honestly, like a, another kind of pro tip for for your listeners, I know that when I worked at direct contact customer jobs, like specifically the McDonald's and Convergis, if you treat workers like human beings, like I know that I did, I would have done anything for those people that were actually that, you know, were decent to me, like that treated me like a human being. And like that has been, I've been working sort of under that assumption every single time I've had to call customer service in, you know, the last couple of years. And it seems to be pretty universal. Another thing I wanted to talk to you about is the way that these companies contribute to this, this ideology of, of pride in one's work with this, this massive amount of teamwork propaganda. At the Amazon warehouse, there's a banner that reads, work hard, have fun, make history. In (laughs) in your introductory training or or whatever, you, you were told it's called a fulfillment center rather than a warehouse because, quote, in that building, dreams, desires, wishes are fulfilled. Workers are associates or even Amazonians, which is yeah. particularly fucked up given what we were discussing before, that actual Amazonian indigenous people are some of the most like oppressed and brutalized people on earth. But anyhow, at the call <laughs> at the Convergence call center, they call having a good attitude being convergible. One Keep manager one manager there told you, quote, your face should be hurting from smiling. You should get cramps in your cheeks. If you don't, you're not doing the right thing. <laughs> it, it, explain this mandatory cheer. Well, it is actually like true voice-wise like if you if you smile while you're talking, it like absolutely does come through and it does actually improve your general experience because I don't know exactly why, but people you, you sound happier, uh I guess when you smile and you sound like more personable. Uh so that wasn't too illegitimate, but like yeah, that was pretty pretty wild. And again, like the reason that when they do studies of like emotionally difficult jobs in particular, like they a lot of them are done in call centers because specifically because they're a place where there's very you have low control, high demand, and uh, you have to repress your emotions really hard um, and sort of like fake it basically. Perform. Yeah, perform, which is like, I'm a performer, like I. I've been doing, I've been performing since I was like 13 years old. Performing takes a lot of energy. Like it takes more energy than talking to somebody like another person. It really was very hard sometimes. I at least did not really like, thank goodness, my McDonald's was, I think, so busy that it was like very, just like whatever, down to, very down to earth. It didn't really require you to like, I don't know, do some of the like affective labor. Yeah. And like the sort of like culty things that like you hear about it, like Chipotle and stuff, but like where you, where you like are really in on the like company message and like you're changing the world with burritos or something. People just want their nuggets. Yeah. People just want their nuggets. And actually it was a lot easier to be cool to people at like McDonald's was much more 
easy for me because like people wanted to be there and we were also around the corner from a right. weed dispensary and people would just come <laughs> in and order the most ridiculous things. It was it was actually kind of delightful. And they were very, very happy to get like, you know, those 40 McNuggets or whatever the hell they got. Not that uh, McDonald's was entirely pleasant. Not only did you get the mustard thrown at you, you you cut yourself. I did. I think that was on Szechuan sauce day. Oh, Szechuan sauce day. Um, Yeah, so like Szechuan sauce day was super, super miserable to work, especially in, I think, San Francisco, because there, I think, probably is a higher percentage of uh, Rick and Morty fans per, you know, thousand (laughs) than there is in the average place. Yeah, like, so people would just come in kind of all day looking for like the Szechuan sauce that we never had. Like we did not have it at all. Um, But people would come in, they would wait in line. The line was really bad because there were so many like randos that were not really there to order food. They were just there for the sauce. And then, you know, they would spend 15 minutes in line. And then once they got to the front of the line, they would find out we didn't have any Szechuan sauce. And then they would be really mad and like, argue and like basically be annoying and hold the line up even more. So yeah, it was, we were really slammed all day. And one of the things that you really try to keep track of uh, when I think at any probably food service job that involves coffee is like how much coffee you have left. Cause it takes so long to brew a new batch that it'll really screw you over. If you, if you can't you run just out deep of... fry the coffee. Exactly. Yeah. It'll, it'll take, you know, three or four minutes, however long it is to, to, to make a new batch. So you're always, we, the pots we had were opaque because that insulates them better. Uh, so, but that meant that you couldn't tell how much coffee was left at any point. So I would always like, you know, check them by, you know, sort of picking them up to see like, is this one empty? Is this one empty? Is this one empty? And, uh, on Cezron sauce day, I was in a hurry and I did it. And the third one, the handle like twisted somehow. And like, it cut my finger pretty badly and it spilled all of this coffee on my pants. And like McDonald's still keeps their coffee at the, at the same temperature that, that it did. Like when that poor woman like got burned in the, I think it was the nineties in the, in that, you know, that lawsuit that everybody holds. And totally totally misrepresented and distorted as part of some, uh, you know, right wing tort reform campaign. Yeah. Do we have time for me to like just like briefly? Okay, so all right, this woman's name was Stella Liebeck. She was 79 years old. Um, her grandson was driving her around to do like errands. They stopped at the McDonald's drive-thru. She got a coffee. She put it between her knees because the car did not have a cup holder. And uh she was trying to put in cream and sugar and it spilled and she was just like horrendously burned. Like she had to have, you know, like years of skin grafting and just like in a braiding and it, like just these incredibly painful procedures. Uh, and her, yeah, she normal, really did not normal have much coffee, of a of normal coffee is not that hot. Right. Like that's something I have noticed at McDonald's. I had noticed at McDonald's before is that their coffee is usually too hot to drink for like at least 10 minutes after you get it. Um, and so apparently... Anything that's above like 140, 145 degrees will burn your mouth or just burn anything, really. McDonald's, according to the the like 
directions from like McDonald's corporate. You're supposed to keep your coffee between 180 and 190 degrees <laughs> uh, because it gives it a longer shelf life, I gather. Um, so like there had like when so they're literally like, putting Liebet. people at at risk, both customers and workers, t- just to to make money. Yeah. So right. <laughs> the exactly. So this this woman, like you know, horribly burned. She and her daughter had to like take off a lot of work to you know take care of her. So they w- asked McDonald's to like pony up like I think it was ten grand or something like that, and it was just for to cover the medical bills. And uh, the time that the daughter had to take off work, McDonald was like, no, how's 800? <laughs> and wow. So so they ended up suing. And during the lawsuit, it came out that there had been a number of other like similar things like this that had happened. They knew. And that McDonald and yeah, they were perfectly aware that like they were keeping their coffee so hot that it would burn you in like three to seven seconds, which is, you know, very, very fast and sometimes not. You know, it's sometimes too fast to be able to get your pants away from your skin, which I was because I was wearing loose pants that day. Thank God. Um, And so the cut was the worst thing that happened to you. You could have been pretty badly burned. Yes, I definitely like if I had worn skinny jeans that day, I would have been pretty badly burned. But yeah, thank goodness. Just my finger. That's a, a broader theme throughout your your book that this whole kind of casualization of labor it pushes workers to work so hard that they're at higher risk of getting injured, but then workers have to pay for the cost of their injury. You had the McDonald's situation, and then at Amazon, you identified this really like core contradiction where there's this rhetorical emphasis on safety first, but yep. a much stronger overriding demand that productivity goals be met and that you work through the pain. Yeah. Uh, yeah, There, there was a lot of like... It's your personal responsibility not to ir- injure yourself on the job, which is just such a weird thing to say, right? <laughs> it's uh, That's bizarre. Yeah, but it also, basically, it comes down to whether you're measuring what you measure and what you don't measure. And in when it comes to companies that are like as data-centric as Amazon and probably most like large companies that are, because of their scale, are unable to treat workers as anything but like a number or a cog in the machine, it's obvious which rule to follow if there's contradictory rules and you follow the one that is measured. Um, so for example, like you weren't supposed to run in the parking lot. Um, but on my first day, I like was running late because my car got iced over and I was not used to sort of like driving in backwoods, Kentucky in the morning when it was really foggy. So I was like kind of running late. I was I arrived like sort of in the nick of time. And so I just started sprinting to the other end of this building so I would be there on time because I had heard that if you are late your first day, you just are fired. Uh, so I was running and while I was running, I passed this sign that said no running allowed in the parking lot. So they do measure whether you're late automatically. They do not measure whether you're running or whether you're following the safety rules. They, they never measure whether you're following the safety rules because they're like much harder to quantify than how many picks you're making an hour or whatever, or whether you're 30 seconds late. 
it was very much the same with the safety rules. And in particular, the rules about like their advice to avoid like repetitive stress injuries, like you were supposed to stretch like on your own time. But like a lot of these places, like people are so concerned about making rate that they, you know, like put off going to the bathroom. They're not going to spend 10 or 15 minutes stretching like while their clock is running so that they can you know, like be less likely to get a repetitive stress injury later in life. The same thing with like the the ladders, like you were carrying a step ladder around at all times and you were supposed to use it for any anything that was sort of like above your uh, shoulder level. But frankly, it added it added like probably 10 or 20 seconds to your you got penalized. Yeah. Like it made you go slower for doing exactly what they pretended they wanted you to do yeah it's just like the it doesn't matter what they say if the incentives uh are to do the opposite and the overriding incentive for for workers is to not not get fired at the at convergence the call center you had a co-worker who got MRSA on apparently on the job had to pay the medical bills and then return to work at the call center because she needed the job yep that was that was wild. Jesus. Yeah, and the wild thing about that is like all of the interviews that I that I like extensive interviews like that one that I use in the book, they were done with, you know, consent and knowledge of like who I was and what I was doing and what this might be used for. But most of these stories that people told me, particularly at Convergis, they they were not motivated by any sort of like by anything other than telling a coworker like, oh, you should really, you should absolutely sanitize your workplace, sanitize your work area, like obsessively because this happened to me and I would like you to avoid that. And it was kind of, it was just insane. Like there, she had no motivation to tell me that story other than just like to help me out. And then like later she told it to me in the same way when I asked her to, but I don't know. Collective worker resistance in the form of organizing a union obviously would help workers deal with some of the concrete factors that are making their lives hell. But do you think that the process of of coming together, identifying these common problems as common ones rather than individual ones might also in and of itself be therapeutic? Oh, yeah, absolutely. If there's one thing I really can help people with it is that like i used to be really really hard on myself for my inability to hustle in the way that like the sort of like the dream or whatever like you hustle you hustle you hustle you write for the new yorker or whatever right like and i never really had the energy to to like freelance and do more work after work and I always would feel really guilty and bad about that. And I would feel like I was a bad, lazy person because I couldn't constantly work. And definitely, like, had a big hand in, like, my being depressed for a few years. And it was a really bad time for me. But in part, writing this book has sort of made me realize that those expectations that I had for myself were ridiculous like they i was trying to force myself to be like this this robot 
when I'm, in fact, a human being who needs things like screwing around sometimes, you know, and like going to get coffee with coworkers and I don't know, like reading we drank a beer book together or more than coffee. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. But, but like it, I think class consciousness will help people with their mental health because then they will be able to stop blaming themselves for failing in this, in this system that they sort of feel like is this, that their whole lives they've been taught is like this end of history system. Like this is the best it's ever going to be. Like this is a, like Steven Pinker's telling you all about like, you know, there's nothing better than now. So if you feel bad, something's wrong with you. And that is really tough on people. And it's especially tough on poor people because they are by nature, the people who are not succeeding in, you know, in the system and poor people are also the people who do not have access to mental health care most of the time. And I, I just cannot be clear enough on how many undiagnosed people there are in the low-wage workforce with, you know, depression and anxiety and stuff that just have not ever had the opportunity to, you know, go to a therapist or a psychiatrist or something like that and actually talk about, you know, why they feel so bad People tend to like that's another thing that I really found that I found really infuriating that pe that companies sort of like take advantage of is that I find that American workers actually do tend to blame themselves rather than the conditions that they are that they exist in for why their lives are bad. Or like now they have started blaming or a lot of people have started blaming immigrants uh, because that was what Trump offered them as a way to not feel so bad about themselves like the, it, that was a way that was like an explanation for why they were not succeeding that did not require them to hate themselves and and like feel bad about their inability to, to succeed I feel like what we're gonna like we're gonna lose again if we do not offer people another explanation that does not involve you wouldn't you didn't work hard enough you didn't try hard enough, you're not smart enough uh, as to why they are not succeeding in this economy. And like, honestly, like class consciousness, the idea that you, oh, yeah, like, yeah, you're being taken advantage of. Like, that's why this sucks. Just didn't like finding an enemy or like an explanation or a reason that someone is doing this or a reason why your life is so bad is kind of the first step to hope, I guess. Like, rather than despair, uh, which is honestly what a kind of a lot of people live in, like this, this sort of learned hopelessness or learned helplessness, rather, I can totally see why people don't vote because uh, it's kind of bullshit, like, because it will never affect your life. Like, that's why I end the book the way I do. I have had a couple, like, people being like, why didn't you talk about, like, specific policy proposals in the end? And like, that's, I don't know, like, I'm not, <laughs> I have that's ideas, but that's not my book. Like, I, I have thoughts on that, but I'm not a policy person. I, and the amount of work that I would have had, because I don't like, I don't assert things unless I feel like I absolutely positively know them. Like, which is why I do so much of my work is like, experiential, because like, that is the only way 
I can really know what it feels like. I don't know. It would have taken me like another year to research to be that sure about like what policies would help with this. Um, but what I do know, what I do find very persuasive is that like getting like sort of being able to forgive yourself for not being able to keep up in this insane economy that we've built where you're sort of required to repress all of your humanity forgiving yourself for not being able to do that is sort of the first step to being able to change it. So that is sort of like why I left the end a little fuzzy and more just ask people to imagine what an, a, a reasonable world would look like, because I think we have stopped imagining anything other than just shit getting kind of vaguely worse every year forever. Cause that's like a death cult, like, ideology right there like if that's that's hopelessness that's you know we're never going to get anywhere with that well emily gundelsberger thank you very much all right thanks dan good to talk to you again emily gundelsberger is a journalist who worked at pretty much every newspaper in philly including most importantly at philadelphia city paper and the author of on the Clock, What Low-Wage Work Did to Me, and How It Drives America Insane. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that labor's alien character emerges clearly in the fact that as soon as no physical or other compulsion exists, labor is shunned like the plague. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Julia Rock. Our senior advisor is Fia Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com, including, for many episodes, transcripts. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation running strong. Even a few bucks is a huge help. 